Chapter 5 of An Earthman on Venus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alexis Duclos of the French podcast Citizen Cage. An Earthman on Venus by Ralph Mile Farley. A Vision. The full measure of Satan's perfidy was now evident. Under the guise of pretended friendship, he had lured me to the city gate and had persuaded me to step outside. Then, hastily calling a detachment of the guard, he had informed them that I had escaped. He had led them in pursuit of me, and my flight had furnished sufficient verification of his accusation. So now, I was entirely in his power. He was free to kill me without fear of the consequences. For the whole squad would back up his story that I had fled and that he had been forced to slay me for the purpose of preventing my escape. Why did he not bite me at once and end my life, I do not know. Perhaps he wished first to gloat over me. At any rate, after I came out of my daze, he loosened his hold on my throat and, planting his front feet upon my prostrate body, threw his head aloft as if singing a pain of victory, although of course no sound came, then suddenly sprang away from me entirely, and now I discovered the meaning and use of the peculiar green weapons which every Ant-Man carried slung in a holster at his side when out of doors. These supposed weapons were nothing more nor less than green umbrellas, which Satan and the others were now hastily putting up in very evident terror. Sitting up weakly, I tried to figure out what had so frightened them as to cause them to desist abruptly from their attack on me, but I could discern nothing except a patch of sunlight. The very first I had seen, by the way, since my advent on the planet. My late antagonists were apparently watching this, to me, very pleasant sight, with every indication of extreme fear. Looking above, I saw a small bit of blue sky. The patch of sunlight passed close by me and proceeded toward a small herd of green cows who were and as it passed among them, the shifting of their feet stopped, and every cow on whom the light had rested shuddered, wilted and dropped in evident agony upon the ground. Then I realized that this planet must be very close to the center of the solar system, and protected from the intense heat of the sun only by the dense, silvery clouds which surrounded it. I was now nearly certain as I had surmised before from the prevailing silver-grey and a gravity slightly less than on Earth, that this must be the planet Venus. I was still gazing abstractedly at the stricken cows in the wake of the solar heat, when I was rudely called to my senses by the ant-pack closing over me once more, and once again the mandibles of Satan fastened on my throat. But the best laid plans of mice and men and even Ant-Man, gang aft a glee. With all his clever scheming, Satan had made one fatal mistake. 
he had reckoned without the faithful Dogo. As Satan's jaw was about to pierce my jugular, again he dropped me, and stood at attention, as if in response to a peremptory command from a military superior. I looked up and saw that the rest of the guard were also standing at attention. While rapidly approaching up from the city gate came my old friend Dogger, with antenna erect and quivering. Once more, he had saved my life. How I regretted the blows which I had struck him in the fight at the beach on my first day upon this planet, and how glad I was that his had not been the head which I had severed in that spirited encounter. Presently, as if in response to another common, Satan slunk away, and the squad of ant soldiers returned to the city, while Dogo came and stood solicitously at my side. When I had rested sufficiently, I rose to my feet, and together we returned to my quarters. It was time for my lesson, but I was in no mood for study, so I gloomily pushed the books and papers to one side and went and stood by one of the windows, gazing aimlessly at the beautiful garden below. It is always darkest before dawn. As I stood there at the window with my spirits at a low ebb, there came to my eyes a vision which changed the entire course of my life, for crossing the courtyard below me was what seemed to be a human being. Here at last was someone for me to talk to. But was it a human being after all? He or she or it stopped just in front of my window and began daintily to pluck a bouquet of flowers so that I had ample opportunity to study the creature. It wore a blue and white toga similar to the one which the Ant-Man had furnished me, and I now say the reason for the slits in the back for through them protrude a pair of tiny rudimentary butterfly wings of iridescent pearly hue. The complexion of this dainty creature was a softer pink and white than ever high had seen on any baby. Its hair was closely cropped and curly and brilliantly golden. But the most attractive thing about it was the graceful way in which it swayed and pirouetted, as if before a mirror there, unless in its own imagination. This pirouetting led me to suppose that the creature, whether human or not, was probably feminine. Is there any more beautiful sight in the world, or in any world for that matter, than a beautiful girl admiring herself and preening herself and acting altogether natural and girlish when she thinks that she is alone and unobserved? But was this a girl? She was pretty enough to be an angel or a fairy. And the little wings suggested something along that line. Then I began to notice certain other things about her which puzzled me. In the first place, she had an extra little finger on each hand, and six toes on each of her bare little feet. Yet this fact did not in the least detract from their dainty slimness. Then, too, there projected from their forehead two tiny antennae, such as one sees on pictures of elves. Also, she apparently had no ears. Anyhow, the lack of ears was oddly noticeable. 
though the absence of the little pink tip just barely showing below the edge of short hair did give a slightly unfinished look to that part of her head. Antenna and wings. She must be either a fairy or some new and beautiful kind of creature. She bore such a close resemblance to a human being that my lonely spirit was cheered by the thought that at least there was a possibility of speech and human companionship on this planet. So intent I had been on drinking in this vision of beauty below my window that I had not noticed Dogo approach me and place himself at my side. I was terribly fearful lest the girl should go away without my finding out who she was and how I might see her again. So, forgetting my manners and even the fact that she was of an unknown race, I plucked up sufficient courage to address her. My dear young lady, I began, but I got no further, for without noticing me in the least, she picked up her flowers and left the courtyard. Then I turned, and there was Dogo standing beside me, so he, too, had seen the fairy. Seizing my pad and paper, I wrote, What is that? And he replied, It is a cupian. Are there many cupians? I wrote. Yes, he answered. Am I a cupian? I asked his answer. We do not know. It puzzles us. That afternoon I made more progress with my studies than I had made in weeks. For now I was no longer fitting myself merely for a bare existence in an ant civilization, but rather I was preparing for communication with, and I hope, life among creatures closely resembling my own kind. The beautiful Cupian was evidently like the Ant-Man, devoid of hearing. Apparently she lived here in the Ant City, and so undoubtedly understood the Ant language. But to make sure, I asked Dogo on my pad, Do Cupians read and write this kind of writing? And he answered, Yes. At this, I certainly did tackle my work with the Vim. It was clear now that if I wished to communicate with her, I must perfect myself in the written language of the ants. And so I set myself assiduously to the task. Every day, at about the same hour, she came and picked the blue and yellow flowers and the red and purple twig knobs of the garden below my window. And every day I sat in the window and watched her, and racked my brains for some tactful way in which to attract her attention. Of course I raised the question with Dogo, but he kept putting me off by saying, in substance, it is not yet time. This I took to mean that I could not yet write fluently enough to converse with her, and so I redoubled my efforts at my studies. So rapid was my progress now, under the spur of my desire for human companionship, that within a very few days I was able to graduate from my primers and read real books. One of the first real books which they brought me was a history of their world, and this interested me greatly, as it furnished a setting for the experiences which shortly were to crowd upon me. This book confirmed my theory that this world was the silver planet, Venus. 
Finally, I reached a point where my interest was such that I could not wait to wade further through the voluminous pages. So, taking my pad and pencil, I asked Dogo, Tell me briefly about the more recent events on Poros, for so they called the planet, though, of course, I did not yet know the sound of this word, nor even whether it had a sound. Tell me more particularly about the Great War. Well, he replied, also in writing, of course, a little over 500 years ago, the entire inhabited part of the planet Poros, that is to say the continent which is surrounded by the boiling sea, was divided up into 20 or more warring kingdoms of Cupians and one small kingdom of Ant-Man, namely Formia. The Formians, who were possessed of all the virtues, became more and more vexed with the increasing degeneracy of their neighbors, until, for purely altruistic reasons, the Formians began a conquest to extend their culture. When the first convenient excuse offered, we declared war on one of the Cupians' nations, which we proceeded to attack through the territory of a neutral state. But wasn't this wrong? I interjected. He admitted, I suppose that you are right and that it really was a violation of all treaties and of the solemn customs of the planet. But it was all in a noble cause. The other nations did not have sense enough, he continued, to rally to combat the common menace. And so the Formians gradually conquered them one by one, until at last Formia was mistress of all Poros. There must have been some very able statesmen in the imperial council at that time, judging by the terms imposed by our conquering nation. We erected a fence, or pale, across the middle of the entire continent, and all the Cupians, regardless of their former boundaries, were organized into a single nation to the north of this pale. The nation was named Cupia, after the creatures who composed it, and Q the first was made its king. Q, so I later gathered from the book, was a renegade Cupian, who had always greatly admired the conquerors, and had even gone so far as to assist them in their conquest. The Ant-Men, Dogo went on, took over all the territory to the south of the Pale, and prospered greatly. We were naturally a more industrious race than the sport-loving Cupians, and now had in addition the services of slaves. For by the terms of the Treaty of Muni, every male Cupian upon coming of age has to labor for two years in Formia. There have followed nearly five hundred years of peace, a peace of force, it is true, and yet a peace under which both countries had enjoyed prosperity, in recognition of which fact the anniversary of the signing of the treaty is annually celebrated throughout the continent. The present reigning monarch of Cupia is Q the Twelfth, the first after a long line of docile kings to give us any trouble in the enforcement of the treaty, but even he keeps within the law. The statutes of Cupia are enacted by a popular assembly, while those of Formia are promulgated by an appointive council of twelve. 
but the law of both countries must receive the approval of the Queen of Formia. Such were the salient features of the recent history of Poros. Every day I watch for the fair Cupian at the appointed hour. I learn to know her every feature and every curve of her supple girlish body. I noted that her eyes were azure blue. I noticed the dainty way in which the tip of her little pink tongue just touched each edible red twig knob which she placed between her lips and many another individual mannerism. A great many beautiful girls have I met in the course of my brief existence. Boston society need yield the palm to none on this score. Yet I had gone to all the teas and dinners and dances perfunctorily merely because it was done and had always regarded women as an awful bore. How few women are interested in radio engineering, for instance, or even have a sympathetic feeling for it. But now all was changed, and I didn't in the least care whether or not this girl was interested in radio engineering, or what she was interested in, provided I could eventually interest her in me. For I longed for human companionship, of course, on days when tropical thunderstorms swept the city, as happened frequently, I did not expect her. But on such days I missed this, my one contact with humanity, and felt vaguely uneasy. Yet I did not fully realize how much even these daily visits of hers to my garden had come to mean to me, until one perfectly pleasant day when the Cupian girl failed to show up at the expected hour, I waited and waited, and fretted and fretted, but still she did not come. Dogo was unable to offer any consolation, and my lessons went very badly. The next day the committee of four made one of their visits of inspection. I had now progressed far enough in my mastery of the language so that Dogo was able to explain to me the reason for the existence of this committee. These four, wrote he, are the professors of biology, anatomy, agriculture and eugenics from the University of Muni, the center of education of all poros. Immediately upon your capture, this committee was speedily dispatched by the university authorities to make a thorough study of you. They were to determine whether you are a cupian or some new and strange kind of beast, and whether your particular breed could be put to any good use. How interesting, I wrote on my pad. It is for them to question you, he replied. Come. I will write down for you to answer the things they wish to know. So then, through the medium of Dogo's pad, they questioned me at length about myself, the earth, how I had come to Poros, and my progress since landing. But their procedure mystified me. How did Dogo know what they wanted him to say? Was he a mind reader? When they had asked me all they cared, they gathered together in a corner, 
apparently holding an inaudible conference on the result. It was evident that there was something of great moment in the air. And so there was, for presently they withdrew and returned with the young girl, the girl whose presence on this planet had inspired me to master at last the ant language. Eagerly I sprang forward with my stylus and paper, anxious to start a conversation with this fair creature, and then I was halted by the sight of a face. To my dying day, nothing can ever wipe from my memory the deeply engraved picture of the look of absolute horror and loathing which she gave me. As she recalled from the contamination of my presence, then she fainted dead away and was carried out by the four professors. Oh, how I longed for her, the one human-like creature that I had seen on Poros. And yet, when an impassable gulf separated us, the gulf between the understandings and mentalities and means of communication of two distinct worlds, I was determined, nevertheless, to see her again. But how? That was the question. End of chapter 5 A Vision Recording by Alexis Duclos of the French podcast Citizen Cage